Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Boy, nice weather out today, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, beautiful. Let's go ahead and, cl- and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that you will join us with your spirit and your angels. We, we want to remember Alan this week who is struggling with uh, illness and sickness, that you will restore him to health in accordance with your will. Uh, be with the members of our class who can't be here today and those who are joining us online, that you will guide and enlighten them, that they can be uh, lights in their community. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our study guide, Evangelism and Witnessing, and the title this week is Corporate Evangelism and Witnessing. Somebody read for us the memory text, please. It's Second Timothy 2.2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit to these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Any idea what Paul taught Timothy that Timothy is to teach others who are to still teach others. And I was thinking maybe the context there might help. And So anybody want to read 2 Timothy uh, 2, 3 through 7? 3 through 7. And the question, you know, Paul has just told Timothy, hey, uh, teach the things you've heard, uh, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And uh, the question is, what is it that he was taught that we are to teach and to teach others still? And I'm thinking that maybe Paul gave some insights in the verses that follow. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Whoever serves in the military doesn't get mixed up in non-military activities. This pleases his commanding officer. Whoever enters an athletic competition wins the prize only when playing by the rules. A hardworking farmer should have the first share of the crops. Understand what I'm saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. Does that clear it up for everybody? A little bit? Well, this is what I want to look at. I think Paul's giving... You notice how he said, hey, teach, teach what you've heard. Then he gives these little things and he says... Um, Reflect on what I'm saying. Think about it, because the Lord will help you understand it. So I'm thinking he's given some insight into what he was teaching and what we are to teach others. Any thoughts about what you hear being taught in this passage? Obey the rules rules is one possibility. He was teaching a lifestyle. A lifestyle. Well, I like where you're going with that. Other thoughts? Verse 8. Always think about Jesus Christ. He was brought back to life and a descendant of David. This is the good news that I tell to others. Absolutely, yes. And so, so the, Jesus, the Jesus Christ being brought back to life, how does it connect with what we just read? Is there a connection? That's what he's supposed to be teaching to others. That's what he's supposed to be teaching to others. Well, here's the paraphrase that I wrote of those verses. See what you think, if this is maybe what's going on. So remember we're on the same team. So endure, us, endure the hardship of, of the... Let me start over with that. Remember, we're on the same team. So endure with us the hardship of advancing the remedy as dedicated as a dedicated soldier of Jesus Christ. No active duty soldier spends his energy on civilian matters, but carries out his orders to please his commander. Similarly, an athlete will never win a competition if he fails to exercise, work out, or operate in harmony with the laws of health. And it is the farmer who is diligent, who plants, waters, fertilizes, and operates in harmony with the laws of nature that receives the best crop. Meditate on the principles of God's kingdom I'm describing, for the Lord will help you understand all these things. We're not going to do it by just sitting around. We have to put forth some effort. Yeah, so as Paul is suggesting, and I'm suggesting that we ask the question, Paul's suggesting that God's kingdom is not arbitrary. It's not built on a civilian civilian laws and civilian principles uh, or rules, but is, is a kingdom built on natural law, the law of love, and that we should not get diverted into the governments and, the, and divert our, our, our church energies and our theological belief systems into a worldly civilian construct. And we should remember how the athlete wins, that he exercises, and when he exercises and practices, he naturally gets more efficient and stronger, and how the farmer gets produce and crop that he operates in harmony with the laws of nature. And these are the natural outcomes of being diligent to plant the good seed and water and weed out the weeds and and fertilize that the crops come. Uh, Is this what Paul is teaching, that that God's universe runs on, on certain principles, and in harmony with them, we get good outcomes, and if we don't harmonize with them, we don't. Thoughts? Principal partnership. Principal partnership. 
thoughts about that? You think I'm overreaching, overstating? Is Paul helping Timothy realize that we can look into nature and the natural world to help understand God's kingdom as we teach people about what Christ did and Christ's victory for us? Well, if you, if you keep that in mind, moving to Sunday's lesson, Sunday's lesson, the title is Letting the Left and the Right Hand Know, and that actually, that title struck in my mind a question. Historically within this church, what has been considered the right hand of the gospel? So you guys all knew that answer. That's right. The medical missionary work. And I'll just give you a couple of quotes from one of the founders of the church to kind of put this in, in context. It says, um, the medical missionary work is to be to the work of the church as the right arm to the body. The third angel goes forth proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The medical missionary work is the gospel in practice. I like that statement. The, med- the gospel in practice. All lines of work are to be harmoniously blended, giving the invitation come for all things are now ready. And that was out of 8 Testimony 7.7. And this is, um, uh, what's the abbreviation? C-H-S. Can't remember that one. Anyway, it's page 134. Christian service, thank you. Christian service, 134. It says, again and again, I have been instructed that the medical missionary work is to bear the same relation to the work of the third angel's message that the arm and the hand bear to the body. Under the direction of the divine head, they are to work unitedly in preparing the way for the coming of Christ. The right arm of the body of truth is to be constantly active, constantly at work, and uh, God will strengthen it. But it is not to be made the body. At the same time, the body is not to say to the arm, I have no need of you. The body has need of the arm in order to do active, aggressive work. Both have their appointed work, and each will suffer loss if work independently from each other. What is, wh- how do you take this metaphor of the right arm and the body and put it together in practical language and terms? The right arm is medical missionary work. In other words, health work, healing work. The gospel in practice. But it's not the gospel the body of the gospel, why? Because do we need more than physical healing? Yes, we need more than physical healing, right? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, we need more than physical healing. So if we only stop with physical healing, well then, and the, and the health message, and that's all we, we, and we focus on, then what happens is people get to live a little bit longer in a world of sin. And that's it. Do we suffer loss if we present the gospel separate from the medical missionary work. What kind of loss happens? What kind of problems occur? You lose the healing aspect. If you, and, and what happens instead? Degradation. I mean, you try to do it yourself, and you don't understand that the healer is where all the good news stands. Other thoughts? I'm looking up a Bible passage while you guys are telling this. Other thoughts? Well, I was just going to say that if you get rid of the healing model, then all you have left is the legal model. Mm. Has, have we done a good job as, 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 Christ, as Christians of keeping together the health message and the gospel message tightly united together, working together to present the gospel? Have we done a good job with that? No. Other comments about this? Often it's just been used as an introduction to a... A enticement to come to a service or come to a program or, or whatever. It's not been an example of how God works. Well, I was trying to look up Isaiah chapter 19, and in, and in chapter 19 of Isaiah, um, Isaiah gives a prophecy. It's quite, quite dramatic. And in the prophecy in Isaiah 19, he talks about the Egyptians building a highway to Assyria and how the Assyrians and the Egyptians will join together with the children of Israel, three separate groups called God's people, and it says that God will heal them. And it's very, very profound. Um, If you look at this prophecy, it's actually staggering if you consider the context of who Egypt was and Assyria was to Israel, that in the end, they're going to be called God's people, and they're going to be not pardoned, but healed. If, you, if anybody jumps there and finds it, uh, uh, raise your hand and let's share that text if you find that one. Yes? I have a viewer online who asks, or states, it seems to me that Jesus always took care of people's physical needs first, took those out of the way before he preached to them. 
Yeah, and, and, what, and what does that demonstrate? Can doctors heal people outside the laws of health? Can God heal the soul outside the law of love? No. Wendell, did you have that text? Um, Isaiah 19, starting in verse 20, it talks about why they need healing. These objects will be a sign and a witness that the Lord of armies is in Egypt. When the people cry to the Lord because of those who oppress them, he will send the Savior and Defender to rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know the Lord when that day comes. No, no, wait, let me pause. You notice the language using there. What's the new covenant experience? No one should say to his brother, know the Lord because we will all know. know him. That's Jeremiah. That's in Hebrews. And notice the Egyptians are going to know the Lord. Yeah. When that day comes, they will worship with sacrifices and food offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and carry them out. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. When he strikes them, he will also heal them. Then they will come back to the Lord and he will respond to their prayers and heal them. There you go. I mean, isn't that powerful? Yeah. Go ahead, back there. Yes, when we have health, we're much better able to hear God's voice. And our health doesn't become a distractor from our uh, spiritual growth. Oh, there's a lot of truth in that too, isn't there? There's a lot of truth in that. The healthier we are, the better our brain functions. And the better our brain functions, the more we can uh, grow spiritually in our understanding of God. And then the uh, combination of both physical and mental health, the more effective we can be in God's cause to reach and help and bless others. The sicker we are, and instead of being able to engage in ministry, we, ha- we need people to minister to us and help us. And so um, it, I, that's a great point. Um, You know, my view is that the health message is most powerful in, in actually demonstrating, in reality, the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation, the, the, the word salvation, you know, the root means to heal. The, the root word for salvation is salve, like an eye salve. Uh, what does it do? It heals. If you go into an ER and, and, you, and you've been bitten by a snake and, and, you, and you say to the doctor, please save me, please save me. I've been bitten by this, this rattlesnake. The doctor goes, well, I forgive you. <laughs> Um, and is that, what you're, is that what you're looking for when you say, save me? No, you want to be healed. And, and the word sozo in Greek that, that actually translates save also translates heal. It means to heal. And the whole plan of salvation is the plan of healing, the plan of restoration, the plan of, of a recreation, the plan of renewal, the plan of taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh, the plan of writing the law on the heart and mind, the plan of giving us the mind of Christ, the plan of, of recreation and regeneration. I mean, that is the plan of salvation. And anything else that misrepresents that is something else that leaves us with uh, some uh, declared status, but without actually transformation, misses the point. You know, when we divorce the scripture from the laws that God built his universe to run, run upon, laws of science and nature, then it seems that's when we get into all kinds of trouble. Uh, first paragraph says, most people in the church are busy. Others, for various reasons, do comparatively little. Either way, people often are not aware of what the church as a whole is planning or working toward. Consequently, they don't see how the activities in which they may be involved are contributing to the church's overall goals. What should our goals be as a group, as a class, as a ministry? What should our, our goals be? Do we have goals? Our goals are to get here on time and, and, and end on time. Each other uh, well, we started with the passage that Paul gave a goal. Hey, remember what was taught to you and teach it to others so they can teach to others. So one goal is, as you're saying, teach other people. Teach other people. How, how are we doing? How are you guys doing at teaching? Well, until we know the truth, we can't teach other people what they need to know. So it's really important to know the truth. And, and the truth with a capital T and a person behind it. Right, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think we need to define what the gospel is. If we're supposed to go out and proclaim the gospel and we don't have a definition of what the gospel is, we may be talking about a bunch of different things. Well, so, class, what's the gospel? God's love. Good news, several people said. That's the, so the good news, Russell said, God is love. That's the good news. Yes? I think that's absolutely right. What's the problem with that? And, and I guess what's the difficulty, not problem, because it's the truth. God is love. But what's the difficulty in telling that to somebody? Do they have preconceived ideas about what that means already? So you use those words and they go, absolutely, we teach the same thing. Yes? It's more important to say what God is not uh, because of the preconceived ideas. God isn't what a lot of people think he is. 
And then we have to define what he is. He's, he's just like Jesus. Thoughts about that? You know, it's very difficult that I've, I've found sometimes as I try to present some of these concepts. Um, you can present the God as love and people will amen and amen and amen. And then they can go hear a sermon where God angrily and wrathfully rains fire down to torture and punish. And they'll go amen and amen. Have you seen this? Same people. Yeah. Only going to be effective in the way you act and treat other people and give up so much of your selfishness and treat them with love. Oh, this, now you're reminding me of what Gandhi said. And I don't know the exact quote, but the general idea was, hey, I read the New Testament and I really like Jesus Christ and I would be a Christian if I ever met one. So I think that's right. One of the most powerful ways we teach and, and reach is to live like Christ, yeah? Yeah. If we wait until we have all the truth and we've got it all correct in our minds before we start sharing, we'll never gain. We'll never share, will we? We'll never share. When the Lord comes, will there be a person on earth that has all the truth? No. Nobody. So yeah. We have to, we, we get more as we give. Oh, now she just described a law. Did you hear that? I don't know if you heard it, but she described a universal law. We get more as we give. Metaphorically, I like the metaphor of um, a, uh, a hose, a water hose and a, and a fire hose, the fire hydrant. You hook up the fire hose and you turn it on. You, t- you turn on the water hose on your garden hose on your house and you open them up but both. Which is giving away more? Which is receiving more to it? You see, the more you give, the more you... Receive, that's what you're saying. The more you teach, the more you share, the more you will understand, the more you will comprehend. This is the law. It's the way God built his universe to run. If you haven't tried it, try it. Start teaching somebody. You're going to find that your mind is going to start to open. You're going to learn things that you didn't learn before. I see multiple heads nodding around the room. You've tried this and experienced it, haven't you? Yeah. Part of the definition that we are dealing with, as far as definition of love, is the benevolent taking care of another, regardless of what it does to you, in, in some way. And yet, if you look at the dictionary, the word love, that's nowhere in there. Uh, yeah, uh, where, where would you find that definition? There's a word in the dictionary that has that definition, altruism. Altruism is, is the word that would define that, wouldn't it? The benevolent giving of yourself to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the word love in our language is, is commonly abused and, and been defined in many other, sometimes ugly ways. Yeah. Monday's lesson, it says, um, talking about um, evangelism, uh, first question I have for you in Monday's lesson is, how do we afi- define evangelism? In the first paragraph, we can just look at that. It says, often when it comes to planning and witnessing and evangelism goals and strategies, only a very few people are involved. Then when plans have been decided, those few people set about the task of trying to get others involved in the important implementation stages. It is much better to get a large group involved uh, right from the very start. This is why the, uh, the church manual states that uh, a chief concern of the church board is the work of planning and fostering evangelism in all its phases. So what is evangelism? How would you define it? Yes. Yeah, one of the things, you know, I think we have misconceptions of what evangelism is. And um, I've always thought that, you know, we start with evangelism as bringing people into a relationship with their Savior and letting the Holy Spirit do it from there. You know, we try to do the work of the Holy Spirit sometimes, and maybe we should just bring people into a relationship and let the saving power of Christ transform the life. And letting that relationship grow. And as that relationship grows, people gradually have new truth. So maybe part of evangelism should be let's bring people, including ourselves, into a relationship with God where he can teach us these truths, where he can change our minds. And when we change our minds, we we see in science that we can actually change our chemistry and our health and our habits. Maybe that should be at the core of evangelism rather than to bring them into a certain way of worship or a certain way of thinking. Wait, wait, wait now. Now, if, if, and I really like everything you said, uh, very much, but things ran through my mind. Are you saying then, if we evangelize, I can't know as I'm preaching to a group 
what God wants that group and those people to do. I can't know whether God wants them to leave this church and join that church. I can't know whether they should worship on this way or, or worship in that way or change this habit or change that habit. I, I can't know what God's going to call that person for. Is that what you're saying? Maybe we should start at the basics in evangelism, you know, getting people to... Because isn't it true that evangelism, often when you go to evangelize, you have a preconceived idea of what successful evangelism will look like, and it will look like these people joining this organization. That's will be successful. If they don't join, then they're lost. Yeah, but let's go back and look at our model. Back in the, old, the New Testament, what did Christ do? What was his model? He loved them. He healed them. He tried to bring them into new truth and let them learn. And then he said, the Holy Spirit comes down and joins you, and then we go from there. Yeah, and he taught them principles to live by, didn't he? Taught them principles to live by. Yeah. Um, as you think about evangelism, I like. Do you like what what Jim's saying? Yeah, and and of course, how can we then become even more potent at doing that? More effective at doing that very thing? Any ideas? Do you have any concrete ways to take this great concept and put it into practice? Or unless he talks about doing it corporately. Okay, so corporately, so that's why I'm talking to you guys. We're a group. We're a corporation here. We're a bunch of us working together. How can we together do this? Should should we just, you know, let a couple of people do it, or should we work together? Seems to me we need to provide a message. This is where the health message right arm comes in that resonates where people are. They have people have needs. People have hurts. People have have problems. And 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 God's message is ult- the ultimate solution. I read a book recently called The Ultimate Prescription, okay? And, and the message in the relationship with Jesus Christ is the ultimate solution to our problems, isn't it? Can it translate into real-world needs, or is it theoretical? Well, we've got an eternal destiny one day we need to prayer for, but right now we've got these problems, and they're really not connected. Is that often how church seems? You fight all week, and then you come to church to make sure you've got your end game covered. It's my, it's my life insurance policy is my weekly church visit but it doesn't really do anything for me through the rest of the week. Should there be a connection between the daily living experience, bringing God's methods to bear on our life, that actually meets people's needs where they are? Can we communicate that to them? There must be. There must be. Does the law of love have any practical application for people, even if they don't believe in God and don't go to church? Well, the studies are very clear, and I've got uh, a lot of studies uh, that show, multiple studies, in fact, 10, 15, 20 more studies show that if you're altruistic, if you engage in volunteerism, if you give of yourself to help other people, you have better health, you have uh, less heart disease, you you actually uh, age at a uh, more um, uh, graceful way where you get less disability, uh, you have less dementia as you get older, you stay autonomous and independent longer, Students, young people who get in volunteerism end up having better uh, scores in school. They get into um, better uh, and more successful careers and outcome, less discipline problems, less drug alcohol problems. I mean, th- the data is very clear. And this was, by the way, when they looked at this data, they, um, um, what's the term when you take variables out? Um, controlled for. Yes, thank you. Controlled for all the different variables of age, socioeconomic background, baseline starting physical health problems and diseases they had before the volunteerism. They controlled for all these things, and still those who did volunteerism had better outcomes. Why? Is this, is this, why? Because it's a law. It's a law upon which life is built to run. Now you have two possible reasons for this, or three. You know, one, it's, it's magic. It's magic. You know, it's just, we don't know, it's mystical. We don't know, it just happens. Uh, one, another option is, well, God uses power from heaven. He watches, and if you do the good things, then he will use his divine power to impose good things upon you. And the third is, it's like exercise. When you exercise, you do get stronger. That's the way things are built to run. Uh, when you exercise these circuits of your brain that give to other people, it actually causes calming of fear circuits of the brain. When you calm fear circuits of the brain, you reduce inflammation. When you reduce inflammation, you actually have better health outcomes across a whole spectrum of diseases and health uh, benefits that come, including better brain health, so you age better. I mean, there is a direct correlation in how we were built. A uh, simple analogy is the designer of your car, most of you probably drive cars that run de- uh, uh, unleaded fuel in them, and uh, the designer has given you a manual that says, hey, unleaded fuel only, and you're free to break it and put diesel in there. And if you do, it won't run well. And my suggestion to you is God is also the designer. He built us to run in harmony with certain principles, and we do, it, it works better. 
And when we don't, things start breaking down. Very simple analogy. But that's kind of why I think this works. And the data would actually support us on this. Um, we're going to have a, a, a potluck and a uh, let's talk uh, June 16. Put that on your calendar, June 16. This is a, about evangelism. And we're going to do the presentation on domestic violence in the church that I did at the American Association of Christian Counselors recently and record that for a new uh, video. And so I encourage you, this will be an opportunity to invite some friends who maybe can't come on, on the morning, uh, morning class time that might can come on the afternoon uh, where we where they can be here, and additionally, once the DVD set's done, it'll be a good sharing tool for you because they're going to demonstrate. Just give you a little little teaser. Would you hypothesize that people who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior have been baptized, proclaim and put themselves out there as Christians, would beat up and abuse their families less than people who don't take Jesus Christ as their Savior? Would you would you hypothesize that Jesus Christ and His principles would change your heart? Come, come see the data. Come see the data on what happens in the church and how people in the church and the, and the statistics on, on how the violence rates are in the church compared to the world. And then we'll look at maybe some interesting causation and why things are the way they are. And we're going to do that on June 16. And we're doing this because, not just to share with you guys, we want to start creating materials, sharing materials that can be shared to help other people with these things. Uh, what I've discovered sadly, and uh, discovered it because some of you may know that uh, Christy and I are going to be grandparents very soon. Yes, isn't that exciting? Yeah. And uh, so uh, I got to thinking ahead, and I'm thinking, oh no, then, you know, Michael and Stephanie, they, they won't be coming to class. They're going to be going to the children's departments and things like this. And oh no, this isn't good. And then I got to thinking, and, and then Stephanie said, well, I don't know though, what are they going to teach? Uh, kids in this children's department. And so I started looking. And do you know, sadly, there are no children's materials that I can find anywhere that teaches this view. There was, back in the 1970s, a series of books developed that were for a short time in our school system, but it became uh, apparent that it was teaching this view of God, so it was pulled and they're gone. And even the author, who I was in contact with recently, who wrote those, doesn't have them anymore. So... Um, yeah, there's nothing. Do you think there, and, and think through the consequence of that then. Think what we're doing. We're always repairing damage. We're always trying to undo things. It's like we raise our kids speaking English, and when they're adults, we realize everybody needs to speak German. And so now we've got to start this. Now we all can learn German, but boy, isn't it a lot harder than if we just taught them from the beginning. We have to teach an entire new language base. And this is what's happening because we're, we're growing up with a certain philosophical framework, a, a cer- certain view of God and the world and how things work. And then when we hit adulthood, we discover, well, it's not actually working that way and we have to relearn everything and it's much harder. I'm suggesting to you there's a need. There's a need. If anybody has an interest, if we want to together work together to start developing resources for, for young people, if we can get some quality stuff, I suspect that that will spread and there'll be people using them various places. If you have an interest in that, let us know. I uh, don't currently have the time to, to do that myself, but there's a need. And this is about evangelism. And how can we really change the next generation if we don't start with the kids? Yeah. Tuesday's lesson. Oh, and by the way, um, as far as where we can help out, Dean says he needs about five more volunteers to help with our weekly setup and stuff. They do it on a rotational basis, so nobody's committed each week. So if you're interested in working with our webcasting crew, um, please uh, stay by afterwards and let Dean get your name so he can get you trained up and you can get on the schedule to rotate and come in and help volunteer to, to run the cameras and the, and the uh, recording equipment. Tuesday's lesson, it's, it's working together as a team. And uh, I want to thank all of you guys that are already working, those in the back room and and uh, those who rotate in and out, because we couldn't make this happen without you. I got to talk to Brad Cole last night. Anybody know Brad? Really good neurologist at Loma Linda. He's got his own website, if you haven't visited, called godscharacter.com. Great, great material on that website. Incredibly good stuff. encourage you to visit there. Anyway, he was telling me uh, last night, he said, you are so blessed to have Dean, what he said. <laughs> you are so blessed to have Dean. His website got hacked this week and was down for a couple of days. Um, and uh, Dean helped get him, get him back up and running, and his website's online again. Um, but yes, we are definitely blessed. I want to thank all, all of you that are helping um, 
I, as I told Christy, we can always get a talking head up here, but if it wasn't for Dean and the rest of the crew, nobody outside this room would hear about it. Third paragraph, it says, Without question, the early believers worked together in groups. <clears throat> it makes a lot of sense. Besides each one having specific gifts and talents that others don't, there's also protection in numbers. There's a sense of accountability. Others are watching you. Others can help guide you. Others can help uh, to protect you from wandering into directions that tragically might lead you astray. A solid team of faithful brothers and sisters, each uh, one looking out for the other, yet all with common goal of soul winning, presents the ideal way of doing outreach. Thoughts about that? As long as you're going in the right direction. Do you know what he means by that? As long as you're going in the right direction. Can a team work together and, and, and support each other, encourage each other, promote each other, all head in the wrong direction? Do you think these suicide bombers we hear about on the news come out of primarily isolation all by themselves, or is there a team behind them getting them ready? Yeah, there's a team behind them getting them ready. Yeah. So as long as we're heading the right direction, that's right. Do you Question for you right now. Do you experience this solid team connection and support in the church and our class? Do you experience that support and team connection? And if not, what can we do to build a cohesion in our ministry so we feel this, this, this connection, this working together, that we're on the same team supporting and encouraging each other? Any thoughts? I think one of the great conclusions to come out of this lesson is to be effective as a team, we need to love each other. If you come in as a bunch of strangers and try to do a project like this that has to do with the heart and the mind and the soul, and you don't have a connection with the other team members, it's going to make it much, much more difficult to do it. So the lesson is we need to get to know each other well enough to love each other to work as a loving team, not just a loving individual. What do you all think about what he's saying? That's kind of radical. We actually have to get to know each other? (laughs) No, I mean, you're exactly right. I was being a little facetious there. But yes, we need to get to know each other. We need to spend time together. Yes. But how do you get to know each other? Yes, how do you get to know each other? We've got, I mean, we come here Sabbath morning, and we sit down, and we share our thoughts. But how do we get to know each other? We come to a potluck. There you go. That's one way to get to know each other. But is that sufficient to really get to know each other. Yeah. I, I mean, some people that I'm acquainted with, I don't know them that well. And we, we attended a workshop one time where we sat across the table from each other, you know, and we got acquainted by sharing our experience where we've been. There were all kinds of questions. And we really became acquainted with the people that we sat down with. But we don't have time, you know, much time to sit down to really become acquainted with each other. What do you all think? It reminds me of the uh, weeds growing up to choke out the good seed in the parable. You know, with the busyness of life, is what it said. The weeds, the busyness of life. And Russell? Well, I would suggest that we don't make time. We all have, you know, king and, and, and slave alike are all given the same amount of time. 168 hours a week, right? It's, it's, a, matter, it's a priorities. It's a matter of priorities. And, and instead of not having the time, we don't make the time. Okay. In the military, some of you know I was the division psychiatrist for the 3rd Infantry Division. And what makes a military unit, what's the most important factor in effective fighting force? Weapons, technology, what's the most important factor? Number one, of all others. Morale and cohesion. Unit morale and cohesion. That, that, com- that, that uh, connectedness, that brotherly bond. If you don't have that brotherly bond in the unit, the unit will fragment under stress. Think it through. The people don't trust each other. They're suspicious of each other. They don't know each other. They, they, they don't, can't rely on each other. And then they get in combat where they're stressed. What's going to happen? They're going to fragment and fall apart. But if they've got that bond where they can trust each other, in fact, you've probably heard of the, the bonds of brotherhood forged in combat or some of the strongest human bonds ever forged. Why? Why is that the case? Well, if you're in combat situation... You really put your life, you trust somebody completely with your life in that situation. The person that you're on, your ally in the foxhole with you has got your back. You're going into rooms and they're co- you're covering them and they're covering you. You know they have put themselves in harm's way for you. And that builds a bond of trust. That builds a bond of trust. Do we have similar experience? I, I would suggest to you the bonds that the, that the lesson 
tells us to look at, the upper room where they all came into one accord. What was their circumstance? Why were they all together in that upper room? Christ had been crucified, and they were hiding out because they were afraid they were also going to be crucified. They had a persecutory power looking after them, and they had a common enemy, and they were there encouraging and supporting each other, and and that brought them very much into one accord. They were in combat. That's exactly what they were. Are we in combat? Do we actually believe it, or is there some theoretical thing? Oh, that old devil, he sometimes is pesky. Are we really in combat, or is it theoretical? Do we experience that combat, or do we actually turn on each other? Do we pull together in the same foxhole to have each other's back, to build each other up? Or do we, wow, that guy's got a porn problem. Wow, that, that, that person's drinking. Wow, what, you know, what, what are we going to do about that? Wow, that person, I, I saw them out eating on Sabbath. Ooh. Hey, they had cheese. <laughs> I mean, you know, do we pull together? Jim. You know, if I was the, wanting to destroy the world... What I think I would do first is destroy relationships, because that was a concept that was given to us at creation when everything was right, and that relationship is so important to our, our physical and, and spiritual chemistry. I destroy relationships at every level. Um, amongst groups, I'd make them too busy to have time to get together. I'd work on destroying the family. I'd work on getting everyone so busy that they didn't have time to have these nurturing relationships that we were made to have. And as I, I worked on this, industry, and we can see it happening in our world. You know, everyone's too busy. We, we have more relationships with our computer and our cell phone now than we have each other. But years ago, didn't people used to get together for weekends and hang out with each other and visit and know, learn with each other and be with each other and, and move forward in a common cause? And didn't we families do things together all the time? We used to sit and eat, eat together and do things on the yeah, but, but now we do the same room. We text each other in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so you can see what's happening. As we lose our ability to have relationships with each other, we're losing our, you know, it's, it's, it affects every aspect of our lives. You know, Russell, one, one second. I want, to, I want to say something first. Um, uh, this idea of relationship. What is it that helps build those bonds? And this is, I think, goes back to the different views of God and his character. Is it a, a natural law of love? Are we operating on that law? Are we operating on an imposed law of rules that have to be punished? Um, and I'm going to tell you, it's grace. Grace is what helps build this. When the woman was caught in adultery, thrown down before Christ, those who operated on a rule system wanted to stone her. Christ, after dispatching them, protecting their reputation, he showed, neither do I condemn you. Now, I'm going to tell you a personal story. In, uh, and, and, and he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and live a better life. Go and sin no more. And as far as we can tell, she lived a better life after that. That grace changed her. In my, uh, when I was in um, college, I was living in a dorm one semester, and, and one night a group of four of us went out um, and went to a drive-in movie past our you know, dorm life. When I went to school, you had a certain curfew you had to be in by. And then uh, we had 30 grace minutes a month you could come in and use those minutes. They would actually clock you in when you came in at night. And if you were more than 30 minutes a month, then you, know, you could get expelled or suspended or all kinds of problems from coming in late into the dorm. Well, um, this group of four, we went out to a movie at a drive-in, and, we didn't, and curfew was like 10 o'clock, and we came in at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> and the uh and the um um the not the monitor the uh what's the word? the dean thank you the dean was sitting up in the waiting room waiting for us as we walked by and all she said was i hope you know you've used your late minutes for the month and that's all she ever said and you know i was never late again the whole time the whole time i never came in late again she showed me grace and I know she didn't have to. She could have, she could have imposed rules. I broke the rules. She could have punished me. But she didn't. She showed me grace. And now, now, I wasn't perfect after that, but I was never late. That rule I never broke again. I was always in on time the rest of that semester. And then I wasn't in the dorm anymore after that. But uh, I, I'm just... <laughs> but my point is grace changes. Think about it in your relationship. Somebody knows you've really messed up and they know what you've done. And they love you anyway. And they accept you anyway. And they're concerned for you. Does it push you away or does it draw you to them? This is what builds relationships, isn't it? This is, I think, part of what the Bible says we should confess our sins one to another. Because when we sin, we live in fear. 
the sin we commit causes us to be afraid. Afraid of um, not being good enough, afraid of rejection, afraid of condemnation, afraid of that people won't like us if they know. Uh, it, it causes us to isolate, to withdraw, to put up, to put up boundaries, to, to, to not let people get close to us because, well, if they get close to me, they're going to see all the ugliness in me and then they won't like me. And, and there's a place when we love each other, it would be like, and if you think this through, through, through the legal model, that makes sense. When you go into court, you don't want the judge to know all the things you've done. You don't. You want the jury to know. You want to hide as much of the truth. If, you, if you're in the wrong, you want to hide as much of the truth as you can in a courtroom, if you're in the wrong. However, when you're sick and you go to the doctor, you want him to give you an MRI and look at the deepest recesses of your being that you can't even look at to find out what's wrong. So it depends. How do we approach each other? Do we approach each other as we're all here to help each other get well? Or do we approach each other as, uh-oh, if, I, if you know, you're going to spank me. I'm going to get spanked. If I'm going to get spanked, I can't tell you. If I'm going to get loved and helped and, and you're going to reach out and build me up, then, hey, I've got a problem. That's why more people are open in AA than they are at church. Because at AA, they get help. At church, they get judged. Russell. Getting back to the idea that, uh, that, that these these bonds that are they're forged in in combat or are stressful situations, I mean, our group has experienced this. I mean, in, in the past few years, we've been ostracized from uh, the church that we belonged to, and 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 that has forged a, a unity, has made our group grow. It has uh, has facilitated better relationships among the group. It's, it's proved to be a positive thing. And the Lord has opened so many avenues and blessings to us, too. Yeah. Um, is there more we can do? Because I, I, I resonated with what you said earlier. I think there's so, th- th- there's so many more relationships we can build in this group. I, I honestly don't know many of you as well as I would like to know you. Uh, Russell, I, I think, probably say the same thing. Yeah. Um, what can we do to build relationships more than you know, a potluck once every few months? Yeah. One of those friendly churches I've ever belonged to was in Texas, and the uh, no, it wasn't Waco. (laughs) 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 It wasn't unusual at all for brand new people to get invited home for lunch, or for people who've known each other for any period of time, no matter what financial status they were in, to come to you and say, what you got for lunch? I've got this, let's get together. There was no planning. It didn't matter if your house wasn't perfect. It was just a feeling of, hey, we're in this together, and we're willing to share our home and our time. Uh, you know, and, and the programs were many that even new people were drawn into and got involved in. Uh, it, it, it really makes for giving you time to know each other. Why do you think we do more of that? I think it was said earlier. I think we're tired. I think we overwork during the week, and we're so exhausted when the weekend comes. And I also think that we don't know each other quite well enough because we think that if we invite somebody over, the house has to be clean. And I don't mean, I don't mean that we keep nasty houses. I don't think anybody does. I mean, a house has to be spectacular. It has to be showroom presentation ready in order to have somebody over. Uh, n- n- am I the only one that has, has uh, seen this happen? You can't have anybody over because we haven't had time this week to, to clean the windows and vacuum and do the baseboards. and, and uh, You know what I'm saying? There might be three. They're, they're, well, we, the breakfast dishes are still in the sink. You can't have people over. I, I think that we are concerned that we won't put on a good presentation of our home, which is a presentation of us, and we'll be thought bad of. So we just can't invite people over spontaneously and say, hey, just come share the afternoon with me. My house is a mess, but come on over. Because we don't know each other well enough. So we don't trust that my reputation would be good if you came to my house and saw my house a mess. I don't trust you. You might talk about me. Whereas we can invite family over. Oh, you can come over. The house is a mess. I don't care about you. Isn't that right? Come on. The people you know about, invite them over. Doesn't matter. We don't want to be vulnerable. Don't want to be vulnerable. And this is the core to our problem. We, are, we, are, we, we live in fear, but perfect love casts out fear. 
We need more love for each other in our hearts, it seems to me. And I'm not, uh, and I'm not preaching to anybody but myself here. I've got the same struggles everybody else does. Um, so we think about this common enemy concept. Which is actually more dangerous? A bottle in your cupboard that has skulls and crossbones on it and says poison dangerous, and it's got poison in it. Or taking the poison and pouring it in a juice bottle with a label of some kids looking happy, promoting the health benefits of what's in it. Which is actually more dangerous? Which is more offensive? Which is more outrageous to you? Which upsets you more? Which is more dangerous? Those who reject God altogether and proclaim that they don't believe in God at all? Or those who claim to be followers of God but misrepresent him? Which is more dangerous? Which is more outrageous? I had a patient once, uh, some time ago, a Christian, Christian lady, uh, church attender, married to another active, active member of the church, a deacon in the church. And uh, she came to see me very depressed and discouraged, and she told me that, uh, that prior to her ever meeting the man that she married, when she was a, a teenager, she had had a one-time sexual encounter in her adolescence. Never again, and uh, uh, and then eventually married the man she was married. And after uh, marriage, the husband evidently asked, discovered, whatever, it came out that she'd had this one encounter sometime in her teenage years. Now, the husband actively, gone going for years during this marriage, was active porn viewer, um, talked openly in front of his wife about how he found other women attractive and liked to um, you know explore relationships with them, but never did, just talked about it. And the husband goes on to criticize this wife, for being an adulterer, for being defiled, for being unworthy, for for deceiving him, because she was not pure and holy when he married her. And he berates her in this way while he continues to look at pornography. When you hear that story, what do you think? How does it hit you? Domestic abuse. It, It is part of domestic violence or abuse. That's exactly what that is. There's no question. But are you offended by that? Does that go across your sensibilities in some way? Is it, are you outraged? What is it you find offensive about that story? Pot calling the kettle black. The, pot, the common vernacular, pot calling the pet kettle black. In other words, the inability to look at one's own self and instead projecting it all out and blaming somebody else. And this is, if you actually look psychodynamically, what's happening, that's exactly what's happening. He's really, his conscience convicts him. He's not at peace with who he is. But he's not mature enough to take ownership over his own weakness of character, and so he, he projects it all out onto the wife and all the ugliness of, of adultery and, and perversity that he, that's in him, he actually puts on the wife and tries to destroy the wife as a very primitive way of destroying the ugliness in him he doesn't own. That's called projection. It's like a movie projector. Movie projector, what's it do? It has a film inside. The, the actual film is in the projector, but you see it out there on the wall. It's projecting it. Well, that's what people do. They'll project the evil in their own heart out onto somebody else and then attack that other person. It's very primitive behavior, but that's what's going on. And that happens because of self-centeredness, childishness. Is that removing the beam out of your own eye? Yes. Yeah, Wendell said, is that removing the beam out of your own eye before you try to pull the splinter out of somebody else's eye? So the question is, do we have enemies? Do we have an enemy that's attacking? Bottom pink section, uh, the lesson, it says, Eager to witness, have you ever found yourself tempted in ways that uh, being in a group could have protected you from? Why is it important to cultivate an attitude of humility and accountability if you're going to work in a group with others? And my question about this uh, being protected in the group is how can we balance the reality that uh, there's no question. Being in a group can help protect us from going down various paths and down various roads. There's no question about that. Um, but how do we balance that with not surrendering our individuality and thinking to the group. Uh, uh, because I've seen this happen. There are actually organizations that their agenda, if you get invited to a certain, I won't mention the organizations because there's several different ones out there, but they have these spiritual retreat weekends. And the purpose of the weekend, ultimately, functionally, what it does, it tries to break down your individuality to get you to conform to gr- the group, to, to gain the garnishment of the group acceptance and you go along with the group, and you get all types of applause and praise and nurturance and affirmations and, and tokens and gifts and food and all kinds of all weekend, but it's all designed to, to slowly erode your sense of individuality to have you join the group so you lose yourself in this group, and then 
it's a collective thought. The group thinks as a group instead of an individual. This is out of, out of um, Christian Workers, page 39. It says, I have been shown that many who profess to have knowledge of the present truth know not what they believe. They do not understand the evidence of their faith. They have, not, they have no just appreciation of the work for the present time. When, some, when the time of trial shall come, there are men now preaching to others who will find upon examining the positions they hold that there are many things for which they can give no satisfactory reason. Until thus tested, they knew not their great ignorance. And there are many in the church who take it for granted that they understand what they believe, but until controversy arises, they do not know their own weakness. When separated from those of like faith and compelled to stand singly and alone to explain their belief, they will be surprised to see how confused their idea are their ideas of what they had accepted as truth. You see, is there is a place for each of us to know in our own mind and be able to explain what we believe and why. What happens in groups sometimes, the danger of groups, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have groups, we need groups. So I'm not, but I'm just pointing out one of the dangers is we can come and associate with a group of people who think similar to us, have same, similar traditions that we do, and, and we get affirmed by that presence, and we never actually think why. Why do we do it this way? What is the purpose? Why do I go at this time? Why do I um, behave this and do this in my life? Well, because that's the way I was raised, that's the way I was taught, that's the way everybody I know does it. Is that a good reason? No. And so each one of us has a responsibility to examine what we believe and why, and what are the evidences for it. Yes? Because we're taught from day one that we should never question God, and then I think as we grow, we're taught that the organization represents God, then we are caught up in this thing of not questioning the organization or God or any person who's in leadership. And that can in itself end up in people submitting to abuse of all kinds. Actually, that, that is a contributing factor to much domestic violence in the church. In fact, one of the, one of the pieces of, of information I will put out, I'll just give you a little teaser, is um, people who have good Christian beliefs um, stay in domestic abusive relationships longer than those who don't. Because their commitment to the relationship and their belief that they should stay c- cause them to submit longer to abuse than, than other people. Now, is that, you've got to think through. We'll, we'll go some more data, but that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, we're taught to surrender our thinking to a higher authority and not think for ourselves. Interestingly enough, God does not call us to do that. God actually says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, be white as snow. Uh, the mature are those who de- develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans chapter um, 14, 5. So each one of us, in, in God's design, is to be a thinker. Not simply parroting back what other people think. Um, as we talk about this evangelism, the, the message that we want to take forward about God's character of love, I was thinking, what obstacles do you run into when you try and share truth with other people? What are the barriers in our day-to-day operations? And I'm just going to throw out the first one so we can move past it and not talk about that one, and that is theological misunderstanding. And people have different theological views, and that's a barrier. But I want to talk about the theological misunderstanding. What are the other things that get in our practical day-to-day way of sharing the truth? I see how we live, and it doesn't match up. Our lifestyle. Busyness of life. Does busyness of life ever just get in your way? Yeah. Yours and society's. Other people, you may, you may have time, but the other people may be so busy, they don't have time to hear or listen. Financial. Debt, let me tell you, debt, I have discovered, is a horrible thing. What happens is we, in America, we are a, a society of debtors, and what we do is we spend our energy servicing debt. We work and work and work to pay the mortgage, to pay the bills, to pay the debt. And we, doesn't, and we don't have the time to, to do the mission because we have to make those bills. It's a, it's a terrible trap. It's a dream, the American dream, get in debt. <laughs> Buy more, get more, work harder to pay your debt. I mean, that's what it's, that's, that's, that's not a dream. A family conflict or crisis. To, uh, when, when, think about, God has called you on a mission. He, he, he's got a purpose for you. Uh, fa- sometimes family conflicts and crisis can come up out of the blue that could derail you from fulfilling that mission. How about fear of rejection? Your personal fear of rejection. Could that get in the way of sharing with somebody else? How about lack of confidence in your own abilities? 
Well, I, I, I you know, Moses, I, I don't talk very well. I, I stammer. I, I, I'm not a good speaker. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, our, our lack of confidence or nobilities. How about prejudices and biases? Jonah. Jonah was prejudiced. Do we have prejudice and biases? We don't want to share with them. Or they don't want to listen to us. I, I, I personally have experienced that side of it. People being prejudiced and biased against our class. Don't want to hear anything. I had someone from our class this morning tell me that they were having conversation with some uh, church leaders this past week and uh, here in this community. And the conversation was, hey, well, you go to that class, that, bunch, that, that group that left the church. We didn't, he goes, we didn't leave the church. Well, you, you, you go to that teacher there doesn't believe that God kills. God, God never kills. Teaches God never kills. Well, you should come and hear what he has to say. I don't want to hear it. They didn't want to, and he tried to share. Didn't, they didn't want to hear. Didn't want to hear. Because they already knew. Personality differences. That can be a barrier. I mean, and you shouldn't necessarily feel too bad about that. We all have different personalities. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses. Each of us can, you guys can reach people that I can never reach. There will be people that will listen to you that will never listen to me. And there are some people that you will have a camaraderie with. You'll have a, 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 a sense of friendship with. You'll feel comfortable with. And there'll be other people just that's like nails on a chalkboard. Nails on a chalkboard. Oh, can't stand to be around that person. That doesn't necessarily mean either one of you have anything evil going on. It's just, it's just you know, oil, oil and vinegar. Some things don't mix. You meet two good people that aren't good matches to hang out. Yeah. Gossip and rumor. Barriers. Gossip and rumors will run ahead of you. They will run ahead of you. Sometimes we spend our time trying to defeat a, a rumor rather than presenting the truth. Evolutionary theory. I find that as a barrier. Evolutionary theory. In closing, I just want to mention in Thursday's lesson, talking about incorporation, bringing people into the corporate body. How do we bring people in? How do we help people be part and feel part? And, and I think we need to, to reach out. And what are the barriers to having people be incorporated into the group? And what makes you incorporated into the group is when you have a job to do, when you're part of the team, when you get up to bat and we're all cheering for you while you're getting up to bat. That makes you part of the team. When the pop-up's coming your way and we're all cheering for you to catch the ball. That makes you part of the team. Uh, but one of the problems is we live in a spectator society. And so what, what, what's barriers to incorporation? Well, the persons themselves are often very reluctant. They hold back. They sit on the pews. They watch. They want to spectate. They don't want to commit to anything. Is that not true? Lack of commitment on the part of the participants. Hey, I'm here to watch. I'm here to be entertained. I'm not here to get involved. I don't get my hands dirty. Man, you mean I got to commit to something? Um, Often we don't ask. I'm asking for your involvement. We, we, we want lots of people working to help us. If you'd like to be part of a, of a team. Differences in the way we view things and the different visions we might have can be barriers to incorporation. What about, and I'll, I'll put this, uh, we think about incorporating people. What about different views on women leadership? Can we incorporate women into leadership? Well, not so fast now. How about different sexual orientation? Can we incorporate people that are homosexual into participating and sharing the gospel? Can they help in that process? Or is advocating that uh, we lovingly outreach to homosexuals the same as promoting homosexual, homosexuality as God's design? Are those the same? Can a church love homosexuals, even include them in ministry, choir, ushers, greeters, working uh, in visitation, helping others, and simultaneously send a message that homosexuality is not the way God designed things to run? Can you do, can you do that? What well, can a church include people who are blind and deaf and, and send a message that blindness and deafness are not part of God's design? Hmm. Can a church include sinners in their outreach ministry and send a message that sin is not part of God's design? I know there's a few of you are still included here. The rest of us are out. I'm suggesting what was said earlier. We need to have grace. We need to love each other. We need to accept each other that we're all struggling with the same problems of heart and there's only one solution and we want to help each other experience it. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are gracious. That when, when, when humankind fell into sin, deviated from your design, became sick of heart and mind, became self-centered, arrogant, proud, egotistical, that you didn't turn your back, that you saw all these, 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 uh, this wickedness as symptoms of a sick heart problem that you could cure. And you sent your son to do that, to win us back to trust. And then as we trust you, we open the heart. We pray your spirit will take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us. May we experience kindness, grace, love, patience, understanding, wisdom, discernment, that we can have fellowship one with another in unity with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.